so I've had that Dilemi DVD for like years since I was probably like 13. Everyday. Yeah, I think it was at someone's house. and It was one of those I got lent and then like never gave it back because I just loved it so much. <laughs> oh, great. Yeah. Yeah, because we've had this idea for a while, but when last week I proposed we do it for the next episode, I didn't realise the pressure I'd put on myself to find the DVD to make sure I could watch the commentary track in like a few days' time. I like totally didn't even think about that either. Like, Yeah. Of course, you just watch the film. Yeah, but I was like... Fuck, I don't even have, like, a DVD shop in walking distance. Or, like, not, like, ten minutes away. Um, Where did you go? So I went to... I ended up going to two DVD shops in Brighton. Uh, there was one in the Old Market, which is which is a very, very cool store. Like, I can't remember the last time I went into a DVD store and, like, half the films were super obscure that I've had trouble finding online and then the other half was stuff I hadn't even heard of. Nice. It was a really cool shop. I wish I could spend hours browsing in it. Like, what's that called? I can't remember. I will. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll link it in the um, show notes, and I might take a picture of it and put it on the Instagram story or something because it is a really yeah, cool definitely. store. So I asked the DVD store owner, um, and he he said, oh, "No, I had it last week, but I, I don't have it right now." Is it a proper high fidelity moment? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was great. You got the limey. <laughs> Um, so I went to a second store, um, I think it's on Ship Street or something, I'll also link to it, and this was, they had a a much broader sort of range of stuff, sort of more familiar stuff, um, they had things organised by genre, and then they also had, um, another section sort of dedicated to, like, BFI and Arrow and stuff, and this one, you know, I just went straight up to the, uh, to the shop manager and said, have you got it, have you got the limey, uh, and he did, he found it. And um, he also recommended I get in Bruges as well, because that was on a nearby shelf. Oh. <laughs> if I like the limey, I should get in Bruges. Um, and yeah, so the, the limey was part of this offer. It would have been four ninety nine on its own or three for £10. And I was like, well, i got to get three. So then I spent like ages looking around the shop for other films in this deal. Well, you had in Bruges, <laughs> the second one. Uh, I didn't actually go for Imbruge in the end, but I did. I did spend a while trying to find other films in that deal to uh, to, f- to f- complete the complete the sale. Um, so it was fun. Like I haven't had that experience in years. Um, what were your other two? Um, so I decided to get um, the Misfits, which we talked about yes. in a previous episode, because I thought that would be a good one for my for my parents' collection. Like I thought it would just fit in nicely, and it would be a good <laughs> film to have. Like that felt like a good choice and then I also got a film I hadn't seen before um I got Bargy on the Beach oh, so, yeah. which I haven't seen but I've wanted to for a while um I think it came out the year I was born it's about you know diaspora and identity and it's directed by uh, uh is it Grinda Charter so I thought yes yeah that's that sounds right up my alley so I'm gonna look forward to watching that that's awesome so this is the second episode in our series the 99 project where we revisit films released in 99. Um, we look at their legacy, uh, look at what happened to the filmmakers, and 20 years on, in 2019. And we want to see if, if that year really is, is deserves to be known as the, the greatest year in cinema. Because a lot of people say that, but I don't know if it's true. It's a big one for Hollywood. Mm-hmm. I'm Ben Flanagan. Uh, I'm Alicia Izzimi. And today... Uh, we're looking at my favorite, probably my favorite '99 film. Oh well. Um, I'll be honest. Uh, it's Steven Soderbergh's *The Limey*. But it's not just *The Limey*. Uh, we're also going to talk about the commentary track, right? Right. Um, so 1999 is kind of the year. I think it's the year I got my first uh, DVD. Okay. The year that like DVD players kind of became like a mass market thing right mm-hmm. um and uh with that came the advent of the commentary track mm-hmm. which was something that had been around for at least 10 years on like laser discs but really became like something that could easily go on pretty much every movie mm-hmm. and i think that the commentary track for the limey is one of the most interesting and creative ones mm-hmm. and one of the most contentious commentary tracks that i've ever heard oh absolutely yeah it's got a real tension and chemistry and anger intensity between uh the commenters you've got steven soderbergh the director and lem dobbs the screenwriter 
And Lem Dobbs was not happy with the approach that Soderbergh took to his screenplay mm-hmm. in that he kind of threw out a lot of the dialogue and character development and a lot of pivotal scenes and replaced them with his, uh, I guess you would say, like last year at Marienbad kind of uh, time style mm-hmm. that he employs in this film. So we're going to be talking about that. And we're also going to have our new segment, the the take of the week, where we kind of take down a terrible take that we've read this week. You know, talk about why it's so terrible. So this one's a doozy. Yeah, uh, but but first, tell me about tell me about Steven Soderbergh. Because uh, you love him, right? I do love him. Yeah, I think he's like he's kind of the guy that has uh, uh, followed. Mm, almost every trend in filmmaking without in in the last sort of 25 well 30 years without uh ever really selling himself out he's made blockbusters micro budget movies tv he's constantly reinventing himself mm-hmm. uh has a specific style that he kind of uh manages to inject into almost every project that he does um, he's got this huge group of actors that he always returns to. He's great with actors. Um, and I think that his, his 90s run is probably his most classic. I mean, now he's got to even bigger heights. I, have you, I've not seen his latest, though, yet, the Netflix one. I feel almost ashamed to come on this without having uh, watched High Flying Bird yet. <laughs> is that out? Oh, it's out. Yeah, it's been out for a couple of weeks. Oh, fuck. Got to get on top of that. Shit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, he's filming his movies on iPhone now. <laughs> yeah. He is he's he's really fascinating. He does have this such a such a range. He he almost I guess like self-consciously he follows up something very mainstream accessible with something really experimental. But he, his experimental stuff is always still quite accessible. But he's always he's trying new things. He's all, yeah, always pushing himself. Uh so the Limey for example followed his uh what had been his biggest hit to date, which was Out of Sight, which was kind of the movie that saved him. Mm-hmm. This guy comes out of the gate with uh, Sex Lies of Videotape, yeah. uh, wins the Palm Door, wins Sundance with his first movie. Yeah. Uh, this little indie film from uh, from from New Orleans, mm-hmm. um, and then he wasn't really able to to follow that up. He spent a lot of years doing stuff like King of the Hill, uh, Kafka, which was his first collaboration with Lem Dobbs, mm-hmm. um, which is a kind of weird uh, vision of a Kafkaesque society. Um, that doesn't really work. Uh, it's got Jeremy Irons in it, and then he did the underneath, which is a, a another neo noir. That I've not, I've not actually seen that one. Have you seen that with Peter Gallagher? No, I haven't. No, I haven't actually seen that much. Um, Soderbergh. Um, but yeah, I love Sex Lies and Videotape, and obviously it's weird how you realise how much you have seen of his. Like I've seen Aaron Brockovich and uh, um, the Oceans movies because they're just sort of like such big movies that you feel like. You know, you have to see him. Totally. I mean, even in this decade, he had this run in sort of 2010 to 2012 where he was just making out these movies that were like super low-key hits, like uh, between like Contagion, Magic Mike and Haywire. Mm-hmm. He was kind of everywhere. Yeah. And um, Behind the Candelabra was, yeah, like, that was quite a big, big deal. Yeah. No, I've seen, seen those ones as well. Yeah. Um, and they're great. Yeah. Really touching yeah. stuff. He's one of these directors that is always makes a. Uh, he never he's never like this is my masterpiece, you know. Mm-hmm. With the exception of something like Che. Che was his like epic, two part four hour movie that he went off and filmed in in Cuba for years. Um, but it's they're not. He doesn't make these kind of bloated films at all, mm. or stuff that's like an Oscar play or anything like that. Even though he's had Oscar success with with Aaron Brockovich and Traffic, which he won his. Um, Best director Oscar for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but Out of Sight was his, 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 to go back to the 90s, was the film after the underneath where it kind of seemed like he wasn't going to really be able to secure funding for his movies anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, was this mid budget, mid range hit with uh, George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez that just showed them off as stars, had a super slick style in this kind of Tarantino mould, but was it's totally its own thing. It's obviously based on an Elmore Leonard book. Um, and I think that got him the clout to then do The Lime. Well, The Lime is not even a really a passion project, is it? It's just the next thing you wanted to do. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so you said you watched it as a kid. Yeah, it was probably one of the first Soderberghs that I would have come across. Mm-hmm. Um, in the same time that I was really into these uh, lock stock and snatch and stuff. And, and, you know, getting into gangster movies and thinking mm-hmm. that I knew everything about movies because I'd heard of Quentin Tarantino and the Coen uh-huh. Brothers. Uh-huh. Um, and so this, obviously the DVD is like a film four one. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got Terence Stamp and Peter Fonda in it. Um, so I kind of put it in that kind of category as well. Yeah. Um, and I was, I remember finding it quite annoying at that age, but it just always stuck with me and I'd always just watch it if I had like 10 minutes because uh-huh. the editing is just so, um, it wasn't really like anything I'd seen at that time. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, so what, what, what did you think about that editing style that, that Soderbergh uses? Um, so I watched it for the first time, uh, this week. I watched it after work and I didn't realise just how fragmented it was going to be. And it kind of felt, I like, I was quite tired from work and I was just like, you know, this movie was a little bit like homework and I kind of was annoyed at the movie towards the end. I was kind of like mad at it. Because the, the fragmented style kind of felt like a nightmare and it felt a bit unmotivated in the film. Right. And I was kind of annoyed with it. But then I was still thinking about it and then I rewatched it with the commentary and I found it quite excited about it. And I and I was like happy to revisit it. And then I kind of kind of kind of fell in love with this, could see what it was doing, like meet it where it's at, rather than be annoyed, you know, have my expectations, you know, challenged. Yeah. So... I quite liked it, yeah. It's quite heartbreaking. Um, and, yeah, it's cool. So this editing style is... Uh, it kind of delays how information is given to you by introducing you to shots from scenes and then taking you back to other spaces and forward again and kind of s- repeating shots so that you are slowly put into the kind of time that the scene is taking place. Would that be a good way of describing it? Yeah. I mean, it is kind of hard to explain. I think um, Soderbergh and his uh, editor, Sarah Flack, who who's, does a really phenomenal job, like they, they use so many tricks to change the meaning of different shots when you find out more as they're, as they're happening. And they kind of just build towards this this like memory piece feeling. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's sometimes you'll see conversations uh, that where where three different conversations are edited into being one scene, uh, but the the dialogue follows on. So mm-hmm. as if as if they've literally moved where they are as they're saying a conversation. So they can be in the docks talking about something, and then suddenly be at home saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing I really liked that they kept doing was the audio track of a conversation would run through, but the shots didn't quite match up. Like uh, Leslie Ann Warren would be saying something on the audio track, but it would be showing a shot of her mouth not moving, just her kind of reacting to something Terence Stamp just said earlier. <laughs> and I really like that. I like hearing the audio track where their mouths aren't moving and you can yes. kind of read into their expression and read into their reaction and, and the other person's reaction. And it's, yeah, it's really cool. I think the sound, even more than the the visual, the sound editing is kind of what makes you able to follow it, I think. Yes, yeah. Because the sound, yeah, that is always, the sound design is so um, specific to each place. Mm -hmm. There's always something about that space that you can hear that that kind of grounds you, so you know at least where the sound is coming from, if not, yeah, even if it's dislocated from the visual. Yes, there's like a, a James Cameron quote or something where he says like sound is 60% of the movie and I'd like to see people on the internet talk about this and like criticise it and I think well, I think it's that that is true and in this case it's so evident because it's the sound that really guides you and like cements everything together mm-hmm. like to make it feel tangible and coherent and like it's following on. And then of course there's this Cliff Martinez score that's oh, yeah. so, so cool and I don't know. Uh... It's it's just like very low key and like piano jazzy. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's really haunting and really melancholy um, mm. and kind of sparse and tying everything together. Yes, there's a there's a special feature on the DVD of of just the 
the audio, the, just the music track. Just it says isolated score, so you can watch <laughs> the film with just the score. Oh, that's um, fun. Which I thought was an interesting feature. I guess then I don't know what the purpose that was for, but I guess you could just put the film on in, in like the background with the music. Yeah, and just chill yeah. out, have yeah. a dinner party. Yeah, I guess it's, that's what that was for. Well, it's a proper mood piece as a movie. It's just such a vibe, like. Mm-hmm. Um, and some Soderbergh films feel very clinical and um, airless and and corporate. Um, so many of his films are set in like offices and corporate spaces. He's he's very interested in corporate language and like how people um, behave when they are s- sort of stuck within a certain um, linguistic frame that's given to them by like capitalism or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and this. Uh, even even something like Out of Sight does that a lot with like the bank scenes and, and things like that and and I think this um, backgrounds that although it's present in some ways between the Henry Fonda and the and the Terence Stamp characters. Okay. Yeah. Um, so we should we haven't explained the plot. So Terence Stamp is a British Cockney geezer who's fresh out of prison and he's found out his daughter's died. Uh, he she's been living in LA for years. Um, and so he, he goes to LA to seek revenge um, and he uh, soon finds out that uh, Peter Fonda's um, character, who's called Terry Valentine, um, who is a, a, a Peter Fonda surrogate, he's a super rich um, music producer from the 60s, has something mm-hmm. to do with it. And film. And film, right. Yeah, music and film exec, yeah. Yeah. And... Um, so she was his... Uh, I guess they're, they're partners for a little while, uh, while she died. Yes. Um, and you've also got players like Louis Guzman's there, Leslie Ann Warren. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of piecing together how, how she died and why. Yes. Um, and it builds, I mean, as I say, it almost goes into this kind of Tarantino direction towards the end when you have a lot of different characters and different who are kind of up to different things coming together. Yes. You've also got uh, Barry Newman as Peter Fonda's, like, security consultant. And you've got Nikki... Is it Nikki Katz? Yes. From plays, Dazed and Confused and stuff. Yeah. He plays, uh, an, like, a low-rent hitman who's been, who, whom Barry Newman hires to uh, get rid of Terrence Stamp. Yeah. Um, um, but I think that because of this... this more obscuring style the film doesn't feel as much of a piece with those late 90s thrillers those ensemble movies yes it feels very focused on Terence Stamp's in interior yes you do all have these sort of familiar characters and, and tropes and archetypes and like sort of the narrative arc but it does feel kind of fresh and the way it presents it yeah um I mean, Terence Stamp's character is this ridiculous caricature of a Cockney um, who's constantly using rhyming slang. His mm-hmm. accent is so strange, isn't it? Don't, don't you think it's... Yes, I actually <laughs> did struggle with his performance. I thought it was pretty bad. I thought the Cockney stuff was kind of laughable. Yeah. I was like, I had to look it up and see if he was actually... I was surprised to see he actually grew up in the East End as a Cockney. Because it's so he weird, sa- isn't it? <laughs> sa- he sounded so phony in this movie. Yeah, he does. It's it's bizarre, but I, um, I've got to a point with it where I feel like that is part of his personality or, or his lack of personality. Is this guy has spent so long in prison in this world that he is just a collection of Cockney signifiers and nothing else. There's nothing else to him. Like in the same way that Peter Fonda's character is like just a guy that remembers the '60s and just. You know, you look at him and you just think he's your rider and what else is there? Mm-hmm. And I think it is annoying. <laughs> but I, I, I don't know, I think that there's something, mm, there is something going on there. And I think when Terence Stamp's got such an intense face that when they just film him, it's yeah. it works. Yes, I do agree. While I like kind of hated the when he was speaking and kind of this silly Cockney stuff, I did feel every time you cut to him on the plane, his face was amazing. It was so expressive and heartbreaking. Um, There's a bit on the commentary track where Lem Dobbs says, I wanted you to film 
Terence Stamp thinking more. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, half this movie is just shots of him sitting down and like remembering stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that's interesting what you say about how he's just a collection of silly Cockney character- characteristics because I feel like the most, most heartbreaking moments for me in the film are when he realises, he hears something about his daughter and he realises he doesn't really know her. Um, yeah. And and that makes it even sadder, the way he's kind of trying to almost pays the tribute to her and the only way he can is to find her how, how she died in exact revenge. So it's, it's really sad. Yeah. Yeah, he has to kind of brush over anything like that by being a cheeky geezer. Mm. And you can see, because he's just at that age, that you can just see that it's just what what is actually there for him. In that, especially in a world where, like, you know, no one understands what he's saying. So he has to push it even more as a way to navigate it. Mm. He, he There's a bit where Bill Duke plays a policeman in one cameo and he's like, have you got any idea? And he says, oh, no, they turned out my pockets. There's nothing there. It's like, there is nothing. He's just this, like, figure, isn't he? Hmm. I guess, I don't know, you've kind of come up with a defence for any critic, like, you've kind of made it critic-proof that the, the Terence Stamp, Stamp and Peter Fonda characters, because I also had this issue with Peter Fonda, like, he just barely makes an impression apart from, like, the sort of cut-out, like, I know what he does is his job and what, what he stands for, but, you know, I just didn't feel, like, much from him. You've kind of created this defense that makes it hard to criticize because it's intentional well yeah i I think that's what it's going for and i think that it's like stripping these things away so that that's all that is there especially after listening to the screenplay to the to the commentary sorry where he's you know he's like then dobbs is accusing soderbergh of just not caring about people and he says the the great bit where he says um oh you're interested in uh making sure that people know that there is a a back road to get to the house, but you don't care about how they relate to each other. And Soderbergh says, yeah, I care about, I care about where they are, not who they are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's it. It's like you, the film, the film doesn't need to tell you more. It's just like, you just watch their behaviors. Yeah. But I concede that like, in terms of a functioning thriller, maybe that doesn't help. Yeah, I don't know. I guess it's it's kind of you got to yeah, as I say, you got to meet it where it's at. The second time, I was much more receptive to it. The first time, I was kind of annoyed by it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so what would, what did you expect going in as well? Because I think in the same way, you know, the the film for packaging and everything. Mm-hmm. Did did you think it would be a lot more of a sort of geezery movie or? No, I think I knew that it was kind of strange. Um, I don't know. I guess I thought it would be kind of a stripped back thing. I thought it'd be more of a British thing. But yeah, like the limey is like something Americans say about British people. And I've never heard of the word limey outside of this movie. Like it feels like (laughs) such an alien thing, but that's what an American would call British people is the limey. So it feels like this kind of looking at Britishness from a, tourist gaze like it's it, yeah it's, it's a strange one yeah oh it, it is it is like clearly written by an american which is the another strange thing about it and soderbergh's a confessed anglophile he um did a book where he interviewed richard lester um i think this film is very influenced by the the british new wave uh, i mean even to the extent that he uses ken loach clips i think brilliantly to show a young terence stamp Yes, there's there's clips from the movie Poor Cow with the young Terence Stamp playing a young guy who goes to prison, um, and and yeah, they use that. Um, there's a lot of uh, there's like sixty songs on the soundtrack, like the Hollies and the Who and the Birds, and yes. the use of Terence Stamp and uh, Peter Fonda are clearly alluding to that. But it's interesting. So Len Dobbs, I was reading about him. His father's an American painter, but Len Dobbs grew up in like sixties England. Right. And his father, you know, he was a painter, he was a teacher in the 60s. He was like, you know, fucking living the pop art swinging 60s thing. Yeah. So that's like where Lem Dobbs comes from. And then I think, and then he moved to America, you know, to make it in Hollywood. Um, and, right. 
so he's got that's like I feel like that's his whole background like you know he grew up with this image of the cool 60s as a kid and then this film is kind of drawing from those things and that legacy definitely um can we talk about the Henry Fonda introduction uh-huh yeah. uh another like just incredible piece of editing where it kind of gives you like a trailer or like a theme tune kind of thing for for the Fonda character um by just as soon as when you get the first shot of him it then cuts to a ton of clips of him throughout the movie looking cool like smiling at the camera uh, and it just totally uh, locates you in who he is mm-hmm. with this Holly's track, King Midas in reverse, on the on the soundtrack. Yeah. Um, I, I love that. I, it's full of these things that, you know, like using the poor cow, that you're like, these these aren't something rad- so radical that no one else would have thought of them, but it's just put them all in, done it right. Mm-hmm. Like, can you think of other movies that have done those kind of techniques? Um, not off the top of my head. I mean, I can imagine it in, like, movies from the 2000s and 2010s where you've got, like, these mini trailers for characters and the way you introduce things and it's very self-reflexive. But any time I try to imagine it in, like, a gangster movie, it feels grating. But in, in this, it feels kind of, just kind of melancholy. Yeah. It, well, it doesn't, yeah, it's, do, it's not self-reflexive. It doesn't go so far as to be, to like, have his name pop up mm-hmm. as a title or anything like that. And in a film where you're already cutting back and forward a lot, mm-hmm. it's just like a super condensed version of that for this one character. It's, I think it just fits perfect. Every, every beat of this movie, this movie's like 90 minutes long. Mm-hmm. It's so tight. And it manages to have all this space and all this air within that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, massive shout out to editor Sarah Flack, who's worked with Soderbergh uh, and Sofia Coppola a lot. Um, she does an amazing job here. So what else has she done? I know her from like Lost in Translation, yes. I want to say. So that was the first time she worked with Sofia Coppola and she won a BAFTA for editing for that. And she's worked on every Sofia Coppola film since. Um, she's worked on quite a few Soderbergh films. Um and just do a few other things here and there, but yeah, it's great. Um, and, and that style, I noticed him Soderbergh using it before in one of my favourite scenes from uh, Out of Sight. If you remember the and that's edited by Anne VKs. I haven't seen that one. Have you not? No. I think if anything, you'd probably prefer that because it's uh-huh. got the kind of um, yeah, the kind of screwball. Uh, classic Hollywood romance vibe going on. Mm-hmm. Um, that was on the run, right? Well, yeah, kind of, yeah. <laughs> it kind of isn't, is it? But, um, yeah, there's a, a love scene in that that's clearly influenced by um, Don't Look Now, the sex scene in that, you know, in, in Don't Look Now, where it cuts between them making love and, like, getting ready to go out. Uh-huh. I feel like that's kind of the realm that, that Soderbergh's operating in throughout the limey. And, oh yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Obviously, I'll um, don't it now. And bad, bad timing as well. I think he does that even more. Rogue, mm-hmm. British director again. It's like, yes. What are the bits? Oh, um, how did you feel about the character of Jenny and how she's presented in the film? Oh man. Okay. So, Jenny, um, who's. Pl- uh, who is uh, Terence Stamp's daughter? We only see her in flashback and in photos. Um, and as an adult, she's played by Melissa George, who is in Mulholland Drive as the girl. Camilla Rhodes. Yeah, um, I don't think she has any lines in that, but she like she lip syncs the song, and in in the limey, she's there's the newspaper cutting that says girl found dead on Mulholland. And I was just like, oh my God, wait, no. And I was like, throughout the movie, I was trying to figure out like, do I know her? And then I was realizing it was Mulholland Drive and that was in 2001. And it was like kind of added to this nightmarish thing. Like I was also <laughs> looking to the back, but I was also looking to the future of this girl, of this dead girl in a, in a car accident. And it was like, it was driving me crazy. It was like, it was, it was, it was really a spooky experience. It's weird that Melissa George is kind of given like almost the same role here as she has in Mulholland Drive, where she's like, a ghost who is uh, 
ominous and on your mind throughout the film without really appearing, without saying a single line. Yeah. Um, but just has a presence that you can feel. Yes, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that, I don't know what that is. Is that her or is that like the way that people like to use her in movies? What's... I I don't know. I don't know if yeah. Is it just a coincidence? Like, or did they like her in the limey to then to do the same thing in Marlon Drive? But she does it really well. Um, but yeah, I mean, in, in other like, no matter how well she does it, like, dead daughter protagonists with no lines is kind of overdone. Right. Um, and similarly, her um, best friend, played by Leslie Ann Warren, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the the most kind of character detail you get of her is. Uh, when she's introduced, you see before you see her face, you see like um, a shopping teller's hands putting scanning items. Yeah, and it's like like pantyhose and like a tub of ice cream or something. Yeah, it's and it's, it's ice a little cream bit patronizing. Wax strips. Yeah, it's kind of that's a, it. yeah. It was kind of funny. It was kind of cute, but it was also a little I don't know trite. A little reductive. Maybe. Yes. Yeah. Like. Yeah, it, it's it's a hard one as well because like obviously this film is trying to strip everything back so that it just can show you a person's whole life in details like that. But then you're like, well, maybe you know. I don't know. The, the only other detail you really get of her is like when you see her on the the, the playground working. You kind of, but even then, it's not really. Oh, uh, I really like the bit where you see. Um, so she is an is she an acting teacher? Yeah. So she's an acting teacher. That's how she knows Jenny and Louis Guzman. And uh, in her apartment, we just get a quick shot of one of her plays where she plays the leading role, yes. and it's like this really poorly photoshopped thing with her in the <laughs> middle. And I thought that was amazing. That was a great little bit to cut to. Um, totally. But very LA, very very LA Hollywood. It I is. I, I love the way that the LA is shot in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's. I don't know. I guess because they go out of LA as well towards the end. I just the house that uh, Eddie Valentine lives in is just like amazing. You feel the whole geography of it is really well laid out. Um, I love the <laughs> the the kind of um, industrial area that he goes to near the start, where he's walking on that wall for ages. Mm-hmm. It's just a vibe. This movie's a fucking vibe. Yeah. Um, um, oh, of course, also, seeing him buying a gun off some school kids in, like, within the first ten minutes is, like, a nice touch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, I also... So I know Leslie Ann Warren best from this uh, erotic thriller, The Colour of Night, um, with Bruce Willis in it. And she kind of just has a small role in some ensemble cast. But I was also thinking of that when I was watching The Limey because I was like trying to remember where I knew her from. <laughs> and that movie is just a very classic frag- like erotic thriller, post-basic instinct, kind of sleazy, kind of steamy, and also turning the screws in this psychological thriller way. And that was kind of adding to the, to the nightmare feeling I had when I was watching it. All these familiar faces. There's a lot of familiar faces in it. Like Gu- Guzman is like... The ultimate familiar face. Yeah. I think as an actor, I love him. Yeah, yeah, he's great. I think from the way that we talked about it, you can kind of get an impression of why someone who's written a very dense and verbose screenplay might be annoyed uh, at Soderbergh for for approaching his direction in that way. Yes. Yeah. So this commentary track is kind of infamous amongst commentary tracks amongst special features because it features. Steven Soderbergh director and Lem Dobbs uh, screenwriter kind of almost sparring over how the film turned out. I really respect both of them for how candid they are on this. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they are, I think they're still mates. By, well, they, they, Lem Dobbs ended up writing Haywire. Yes, so, so. They, they worked together in 1991 on Kafka. Um, they worked together in 2012 on Haywire. And there's like a unsubstantiated report last year that came out that they're working on kind of some untitled six-part series coming soon so okay so they are still still friends still colleagues despite all the the tension he didn't write mosaic did he who wrote uh i don't think lamb dogs wrote that okay oh it's ed solomon sorry no 
but yeah, it gets quite. Uh, I don't know what the right word is. Um, it's not. Is it passive aggressive or is it just aggressive aggressive? I think at times it's. I think Soderbergh manages to be a little bit more passive aggressive. Uh-huh. Um, Lem Dobbs is annoyed at everyone though. <laughs> yeah, the fucker from Variety. Um, being in one example. Yes. I th- um, yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. So he, he talks about how kind of... I, I mean, Soderbergh kind of introduces it this way, the way screenwriting is kind of a thankless job because people will assign the good things to the director and they'll also, when it could have been the screenwriter's idea, and they'll also blame the screenwriter when maybe it was not the screenwriter's fault at all. Like uh, in the case of the Limey, critics said... It's it's very minimal. There's not enough characters in it, character development or background detail, but that's just stuff that was cut from Len Dobbs's screenplay. Yeah, and he was blamed for it, um, and it kind of highlights the millions and millions of little decisions for, that go from a screenplay to a finished film that will it will change it. And also the kind of responsibility of a director to um, to be faithful to the screenplay. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a bit where um, they talk about the positioning of uh, the Melissa George photograph at the top of the stairs mm-hmm. and how um, in Len Dobbs' script it's kind of hidden, tucked away somewhere. But for the sake of logistics in the film, it's just there's just a photo on a wall at the top of the stairs and how Lem, Lem Dobbs is like, well, why, why would someone that's killed someone still keep their photo there? Mm-hmm. And... And and Soderbergh clearly is just like okay with the fact that some things are there for 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 the sake of a production, the easy production, and that audiences won't really notice, mm-hmm. and that you can kind of get away. Yes, around these things. I I think there's a really interesting sort of back and forth between them, where um, where Lem Dobbs says, you know, if I think about this film as a film goer who has no connection to it, who's disinterested, you know. It's a great movie, but as a screenwriter, I think it's a broken movie. And Soderbergh hits back with, but that first reaction is the one that matters. That's what you're making the film for. Yeah. And he's like, don't you think it hurts me when I have to cut out, you know, things that are are really great directorial touches, but I had to cut them because we're working in service to the the film, not for ourselves. And Dobbs, I I love a bit about two-thirds of the way through when Soderbergh just goes... Um, I think you should direct. Yeah, he's like, when are you going to direct? <laughs> yeah. And Lem Dobbs is just like, oh, well, um, I don't want to get up at six in the morning, so no. <laughs> yeah. But didn't you find an article from, like, years earlier? Yes. So I was reading up on, on Lem Dobbs, and it's from 1991, just after Kafka came out. And he's kind of annoyed with Steven Soderbergh. And it's very similar sort of criticism he has about the Limey, about how things were changed from his screenplay. And uh, the this article is called A Writer So Angry He Plans to Direct. And it's just the same old story. Um, and, but, yeah. But some of the things that, that he's talking about in the commentary, you, think, you feel like even if Soderbergh wasn't taking such a radical approach, he'd still have had to have cut it out. You know, where he talks about a bit um, where uh, a char- uh, Peter Fonda's ex-wife is going to show up and give a, in his words, Paddy Chevsky, uh, like, putting that entire world to rights, like, speech that would have summed up the entire movie. Mm-hmm. And you go, well, if this had been the kind of dirty B-movie that you wanted, then that scene still wouldn't have fit in that, right? Yeah. I mean, Soderbergh said he asked for that monologue, so I think they both took a risk and it didn't work out. Um, and they... I, I mean, that scene does sound great. Yeah, and it's the kind of thing that maybe you just don't realise doesn't fit until you're editing. Um... Yeah. Yeah, because I, the, the, I mean, that entire last sequence is less than 20 minutes yeah. from, from them getting there to the end of the movie, and I, I really like how quick it all kind of unfolds. Yeah. Um... Um, and isn't there a bit as well where he says, where Lendob says something like, um, memory, they're like talking about the film's memory approach, he says like, memory are the different parts of things that might have happened, like you doing my script, pro- <laughs> <laughs> I got that in the kind of the background. 
Yes, he does throw in quite a lot of catty comments. And you can tell that they, this is an argument they've been having for years because they keep alluding to when they've talked about this before or that before. Um, and so you're kind of seeing that relationship just on this commentary, um, which is great. It's Yeah, it's this is like what commentaries to me are like made for. There's so many like... There's so many like stuffy ones that are just people reading like clips of their books, like academics, mm-hmm. um, and people like uh, the David Fincher ones are always very like factual, mm-hmm. but not not very exciting to listen to. I think Scorsese does a slightly better job mm-hmm. on his like Taxi Driver ones and stuff. But this to me, where it's like they're not patting each other on the back, they're actually like digging into the movie, gives this film like an entire other level of richness mm-hmm. that like. To me, there's like the Limey is a great film, but it's the Limey plus the Limey audio commentary that's like a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scott Tobias wrote about the commentary for his article series on the AV Club, New Cult Canon, um, in 2009, which I think that whole series itself is kind of like a tribute to cinephilia in the in the in the noughties. Yes. And the commentary track itself has has accrued this reputation, like this kind of infamous thing of that it, this is something you need to see, and it's like so telling of, of filmmaking. Mm. Um, which I think yeah. is something quite unique to that to that period in time because you've got all these great DVDs with all these audio comment tracks and people are kind of getting experimental with the kind of special features they want to include. And, and they themselves have their own legacies. Like, you know, lots of people talk about the Easter eggs on the Star Wars movie DVDs or um, how the Lord of the Rings special features famously longer than the films themselves got them into filmmaking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's this moment where like people are kind of working out what audio commentary even is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, I love the um, Spinal Tap audio commentaries, the other big one that I go to mm-hmm. where they, it's like a sequel to the film because it's them in character reflecting on the movie yeah which is quite it's like yeah and there's a whole chronology yeah it's fascinating um uh, you know I, I mean i love all the like edgar wright ones the shun the dead and that stuff where they've got the whole cast together but that's just like a hangout that's not they're they're kind of just patting themselves on the back right i don't know i don't think it's too full of itself you know you've got it it's a nice mix of them hanging out and sharing trivia or like a little bit of filmmaking knowledge and the kind of vibe of of what made the film um but yeah i've listened to those so many times uh the shawn of the dead ones hot fuzz and and the space ones yeah um i think the people really talk about the i think that's the one on hot fuzz with edgar wright and tarantino where they're just talking about movies oh, yeah. and you just come away with it like a list of things you want to check out later um which is yeah that is definitely its own cult those those edgar wright ones aren't they yeah and yeah, it's the same with the the Limey one as well. I was like writing a little list of movies I needed to look up later because um, they just kept dropping all these... the like Robert Aldrich and stuff. Yeah, just the stuff they were dropping was really interesting. So that was quite nice just to just to hear about some new movies. Um, yeah, Lem Dobbs like clearly really knows his like you know his British B movies and stuff, mm-hmm. doesn't he? Yeah, I love his whole idea that he would have rescued Robert Aldrich's career. <laughs> That is like, do you remember this bit? He's like, if I'd given him the script at the right time with the right letter, then he would have uh, made the film. It would have been perfect. It would have rescued his career. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's mad. Uh, has, has there recently been a commentary that's been as exciting or do you think they've kind of settled into too much of a groove now? I'm going to be honest. I don't think I've listened to a commentary track in years. No. Like, it's not something I seek out. I mean, I just don't get DVDs anymore. Um, yeah. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the kind of history of special features. Um, so I think people talk about it, how special features and DVD extras kind of started in the 80s with the Criterion Collection. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently King Kong is the first one. I'm not sure exactly. But they're, they're re-releasing old movies but they want to kind of have a selling point for these laser discs. So they add um, audio commentary tracks to these movies. Um, and then this was kind of part of their laser disc thing. And then it kind of experienced a resurgence 
um, in DVDs where you could fit so much extra information in there and these these special features are kind of part of the marketing of it um, but they also you know people got really creative with it and came up with all these things like uh, Robert Rodriguez had these every DVD he makes has like a 10 minute film school feature oh yes um, which is you know got to have inspired like so many people um, I love how fast the editing is in those ones they're so funny yeah yeah, and, and so many filmmakers put in these like put in this extra effort um, and these special things, um, and then around in in twenty eleven, I was finding a lot of articles complaining about the decline of DVD extras. Um, so you know they kind of experienced this heyday in the nineties and the noughties. Um, I got the uh, Children of Men. I might have told you this story before. I don't know if I said it on there. I got the Children of Men DVD the day it came out in two thousand and six. I guess um, mm-hmm. or it might have been early two thousand seven. And it just didn't have any DVD extras on it at all. It was literally just a film. Um, and loads of people complained. And then, so when they re-released it, like, a year or so later, with extras on, um, Empire Magazine had a whole page that was like, if you did buy the old one, you can send it back and you'll get a new copy <laughs> for free. And they, and they referred to it as, like, the vanilla edition. Wow. Yes. Yeah, there's like a weird culture around it where because you're kind of spending so much on the DVD, you, you should be getting more than the film. Um, and But then the companies would kind of withhold it so they could release these extras on special editions to kind of kind of squeeze a little more money out of, it, out of you. Yeah. Um, oh, I just remembered another great uh, commentary track, by the way, is the Blood Simple one. Mm-hmm. Do you know about this one? I don't know. Uh, so it's a film historian talking about the impact of Blood Simple, but it's a fake film historian and the entire thing's scripted by the Coen brothers. And That's it's amazing. Just, yeah. It's quite a tough sit because he just has all this like very pompous language on purpose, but it's it's a good parody. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, one, of, one of my favourite commentary tracks is on... Uh, and Harold and Kumar um, go to White Castle... There's three commentary tracks. There's one with the directors, one with the, I think, directors and John Cho and Cal Penn. And then there's a third commentary track from one of the actors who has a very small speaking role in the movie. Um, he's known <laughs> as Extreme Sports Punk number one, um, or maybe number two. Yeah. But so he's, like, they found him so funny. He's, like, just this Canadian bro. <laughs> and they found him so funny, they just had him sit down and record a commentary track. And That's he's, brilliant. It's really, really funny, really, really amazing. Um, so that's one I like a lot. I used to be into football when I was about like 10 or 11. And I remember we got like Sky Sports for a bit. And um, there was a thing where like you, if you watched a football match and you press like the red button, you could change the audio commentaries. Oh, yeah. Like so instead of like the normal commentators that are just saying what's happening, there was one that was like a fan of each team. <laughs> and yeah. they got them together and they just shower each other it's great oh that's great yeah and I guess I guess like stuff like Twitch and like YouTube streaming has kind of negated the need for those kind of things mm-hmm. um but I don't know why will there be a Quaron commentary on Roma on Netflix I don't know yeah um yeah in like sort of around 2011 2011 2010s 2012 there's sort of a decline of this kind of thing um of of dvd extras and and commentary tracks Um, apparently netflix tried it once there used to be an option where you could select the audio commentary on house of cards like alongside well if it's going to be house of cards then no one's going to listen obviously (laughs) I, i don't know i mean maybe the fans of that show would love that you know that's what the thing about it it's all the special features are for the fans yeah, but come on, like House of sorry. Like if they did it on like uh, Game Over Man, and got those dudes from Workaholics or whatever, that would probably be a bit more fun, right? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you you can't judge. The, I mean, the, I think the the commentary tracks that you love are going to be so personal. True, true. Um, but that's why I think they should keep making them. Um. But, but yeah, now, even better, they could have, like, a, um, you know, when they have, like, the, like reaction videos. Like, 
you could have a little corner with the director being videoed watching the movie. Yeah. And you have that in one corner of the screen talking about it. Yes. Yeah. I do wonder if like, well, there's been kind of a decline of, of, of that, of physical media. Maybe it's kind of found there could be a new place for it on the internet, like YouTube channels that have all these special features for the film. Surely. I, I Yeah. I mean, Criterion still does it. Yeah, no, there's plenty of, like, even though it's it's not, like, a mainstream thing, there's still, like, plenty of places that do it. Criterion, Arrow Film, um, the BFI, like, their DVDs have got quite a lot of special features and, and details and things on them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been so long since I even bought a new, like, so, you know, I only, I only seem to buy, like, older movies now. Yeah. Like, so I just don't know what you get with a new film yeah. anymore if you buy the Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've got a few, um, but yeah, they do tend to be older movies, but they come with a nice booklet and some nice commentary tracks and, and insights from academics. Um, when I was uh, uh, researching this episode, I came across an article from uh, 2018 in the New York Times about like uh, nostalgia for the making of featurette. And there's this uh, this guy who used to run a video store who talks about how he thinks DVDs are going to experience a resurgence like vinyls because the quality of special features mm-hmm. is something people are going to crave and they're going to rise up again in popularity because you just can't get that kind of detail about filmmaking in other places. So he claims. That's his hope. His, yeah. his, his, no, that is very valid. His DVD store has closed now, but he still keeps his, his DVDs. <laughs> I just I got rid of all my DVDs because I just it's literally the minute I I I didn't get a Blu-ray player until 2015 mm-hmm. when I got a PS, PlayStation Four and and so I'd literally like never seen a Blu-ray and the minute I did I was just like this is I'm done I just was like I'm never going back yeah they just look so much better and yeah. sound so much better yeah um, well no but I mean you can still have the the extras on the Blu-ray. Yeah, you can have more, surely. Yeah, you can have more. Um, yeah, I guess I'm kind of using DVDs but and that's... Blu-ray synonymous interchangeably. Oh, okay. But just like the notion of physical media with all the special features. Um, yeah. I, I am, I'm kind of convinced mm-hmm. maybe that I need to invest in that more. God. I, I had about a thousand DVDs and I've got rid of all of them, so there's no way I'm... I've maybe got like 10 left and one of them's the limey <laughs> just because that was, because it's such a formative DVD mm-hmm. owning one for me. Yeah. So I've, yeah, I've got like that and like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Who Framed Roger Rabbit and that's like it. So did you keep those for the fe- special features or for the films? For the films probably pretty much. Okay. Um, i trying to think of other ones I had that had really good features on. I used to have uh, a lot of the ones with the, like a vinyl that you'd flip over halfway through. Oh, yeah. My Goodfellas, my uh, Amadeus. Mm -hmm. I think the Warner Brothers films were like that. Yeah. I I think the only time I've used one of those is when I rented Giant from my uni library. And that was my one experience of doing the flip over. That was fun. Did you ever have on VHS where there'd be like two or three videotapes for a whole movie for one movie no no we never invested that in that kind of thing you never had like titanic on vhs no well let me tell you <laughs> those those sometimes no no we never had any vhs uh box sets in that way for a single film god um, and and they used to have special features on VHS because you had the Godfather on video, mm-hmm. and I remember there was a thing that was like, after the movie, there's an interview of Coppola. Yes, yeah, I remember I had that experience where you you kind of just wouldn't turn the VHS off, and then all these different things would appear. Yeah. Um, like yeah, I remember watching Fight Club once on VHS, and just all these alternative scenes and deleted scenes came up and <laughs> just start playing. Yeah, it was kind of disjointed. I mean, at least with. DVDs and, and Blu-rays, you can kind of select them. There's, there's the, I mean, you know, there's an art in the DVD menu. That's an art in itself. Um, yeah. And they're kind of hunting around. 
Were you talking about, or did I just read this about like there was like an exhibition of might not have even been an exhibition, just like a web page that was just like celebrated DVD menus? No, I have not heard of that, but that sounds good. Is it a Tumblr? Might be a Tumblr. Because I can picture that. That's great. I should contribute to that project. It'd be good if they like, you know, it's the DVD menu in motion though, not just a freeze frame, but like. Yeah. In motion as you scroll down. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I was gonna. I was worried we sounded too nostalgic. I feel like we do sound nostalgic, and I think um, that's why maybe it's a good time to think about uh, deciding: is the limey slash the limey commentary a nineteen ninety nine good, nineteen ninety nine bad, or nineteen ninety nine exists film? <laughs> Can that be the rating system? Sure. Um, I mean, I'm not going to say one day I'm not going to take this rating system to court and petition it, but uh, <laughs> we can use it for now. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's, I've, I've probably made it pretty clear. This is like... I'm, the only real other contenders for my film of 99 are like Bo Travai and Eyes Wide Shut. So this is pretty much number one. So this is a 1999 good film. Mm-hmm. What, what about yourself? Yeah, I like it. I mean, I even kind of like my antagonistic experience the first time I watched it. I kind of like that I had that. And then I like liking it more. And I think it alienates you yeah. as a viewer. Yeah. Um, my girlfriend for the first like, 15, 20 minutes was really like not sure about it. Mm-hmm. But it's the vibe. <laughs> Palsy to it. Mm. Um, shall we mull over it a little bit more and maybe talk about the uh, the take of the week? All right. Death, welcome back to Death Row Take of the Week with me, Ben Flanagan. And Alicia Izumi. Today we have one from io9, uh, the gaming website. Um... And the headline is, Steven Spielberg doesn't get to complain about Netflix movies qualifying for Oscars in a post-Ready Player One world. This is by James Whitbrook, who takes a stand. Um, so, can you explain the context of this? What's, why is Spielberg complaining about Netflix movies? Um, so, after Roma doing so well at the Oscars, Spielberg takes issue with this, and he wants to... He's trying to campaign to exclude uh, Netflix movies and stream- movies from streaming platforms to the Emmys because they're not real movies, they don't count because it's more like TV than a movie if they don't play at theatres. Is that right? Even though Roma did play in cinema a lot longer than stuff like Cold War, but <laughs> he, he doesn't um, care about that. Netflix have kind of hit back with the fact that they're accessible worldwide and they kind of bring think- movies to people where maybe they don't have a theatre. Um, and they kind of highlight, you know, it's just a different movie experience. There's a whole thing going on there. Um, it's it's kind of painful to watch because now then people are saying like, well, Netflix doesn't care about films before 1990 or before 2000. And then people are saying, well, the multiplexes don't, show films from before this year so why are you complaining about that mm-hmm. it's a whole thing but this take just stood out to me because um this person's argument is that if you've made ready player one which the author says that they watched on a flight and didn't enjoy then you shouldn't be allowed to complain about netflix as if those two things are the same as if spielberg isn't like an industry legend who like by making some of the biggest movies ever, definitely does get to have a voice and is, you know, someone who's uh, utilised modern technology a lot and has a lot of uh, belief in, like, proper filmmaking traditions. Seems like a very ill-thought-through take. Okay. I do... So... This writer, he's kind of forcing 
a comparison like um He's kind of forcing a comparison. He's drawing out the elitist undertones of what Spielberg is saying by saying that Netflix movies aren't real movies. And that, you know, there's a kind of quality threshold that's reserved for the Academy and films and TVs and streaming. And then he's kind of taking that thread and comparing, using it to compare Roma to Ready Player One and talking about, you know, where is the true creativity where's the true like aim for for you know for beauty in cinema where's where's that found on netflix or in ready player one and he's kind of forcing this comparison but i think it's maybe one worth saying like you know where can you find art you can find art on netflix and we should recognize that rather than just arbitrarily siphoning it off because it's technically on a people are technically watching on their laptop or something what you're saying has articulated that point far clearer than this piece does, which just kind of talks about how Ben Mendelsohn looks like Shrek uh, and looks like Gordon Brown and then just keeps saying that he hates it, but doesn't really, he just says, oh, I reckon, you know, it's a film full of references, which is such a boring take that we've all heard about Ready Player One already. He doesn't actually make that connection himself. You've, you've teased that out of this take. That's accurate, uh, yes. I, I do think, um, uh, I, I think, you know, he's got that point, and I think Whitbrook's editor could have helped him to cut out maybe some of his <laughs> personal feelings towards uh, Ready Player One, because maybe that should have gone into a, into a Ready Player One review rather than this, this take. I, don't, I just can't handle some, uh, you know, a piece of, like, whatever, an opinion piece or whatever that's going to be like, oh, I was just, like, couldn't sleep on my flight, and so blah so i watched this film and i didn't like it i'm just like that's not you know that's not criticism <laughs> that's literally that's just and it's again it's like this conflation of like blogging and i mean i know it's io9 which is hardly like the fucking film quarterly but like it's just i don't know it's just rubs me the wrong way and it's just, just this kind of like dismissal of spielberg like the guy, I, I love Ready Player One. I get that people don't, but like, he's still a very significant figure. Yes. And like, he still also made The Post the year before, which is in the same kind of realm as Roma, so. Yes. Um, I think we should expect more from io 9 and we should hold them to this kind of scrutiny. We send it to Defro. We send it to Defro. We send it to Defro. <laughs> um, I don't know, Judge. You tell me. You going down? <laughs> ding 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 ding. Whew. Sweet, sweet justice. The taste of blood. It's pretty sweet. So with with that justice dispensed, how? Uh, how do you feel about 1999? I feel good. Um, you know, a lot of critics at the time and looking back talk about 99 as the kind of... Feeling like you're on the threshold of, of some true cinematic greatness. And I agree. Along along with the, the, the commentary track, Cinephilia was in a great place because we had all this material to kind of dive into, like the commentary tracks. It's quite, crazy to think that Soderbergh would go from the limey this year to making Traffic and Erin Brockovich within the space of the next year. Mm-hmm. And I think he said at the end of the commentary track, from the first meeting to the film's release was, took like nine months, mm-hmm. which is incredible. Like, I really just admire his work ethic. Mm-hmm. Yes, his work ethic where, what well, a few years ago he said he's retiring from filmmaking and he's gone on to have like two films a year every year yeah i knew that was a that was a fucking like whatever yeah yeah it's like the, the rapper little Lucy vert recently said that he was retiring and i was mm-hmm. like you're 22 <laughs> like you're not retiring mate and then he's oh little Lucy vert's come out of retirement for this song and you're like well yeah he was gone for maybe a month yeah 
I think, yeah, you know, it's the way Miyazaki says the same thing every after every film. It's like, I'm never making another film again, you know. I think that just it's just a testament to the pain and pleasure of filmmaking, you know, when you're done, if you hate everything. But when you know, there's still something there that you come back to. Do you think Miyazaki will do another one? I don't know if Miyazaki will, but uh, <laughs> he, he did do it several times and there are plenty of filmmakers who have said it as well. And you can kind of feel that pain on on the DVD features, on the special features. Yeah. So, cool. Are we, is, are we kind of done? Uh, or... uh, well, did you see Gotti? I haven't seen Gotti, unfortunately. Okay, I... so that is Lem Dobbs' most recent work. He he wrote the screenplay for Gotti, which came out in 2018 and was Razzie nominated for Worst Screenplay. Yeah. I've, I mean, I've, I've listened to enough podcasts where they, like, roast it to, to get what's going on in Gotti. Mm. Um. But, yeah, I mean, this whole experience calls into question. Where do we place the blame for Gotti? Or the praise? Is it on the screenwriter if so many things can change? Maybe it should be the screenwriter. They, they're un- I think unpaid G's. literally everyone is to blame for Gotti. It's, <laughs> it's directed by E from Entourage. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. Travolta. We need to watch it, really. Travolta, yeah. Travolta exploitation, as a sort of coined. I know there's a line where um, his son gets killed and then he goes, No! He didn't even have hair on his prick! <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah. It is. Thank you for listening. Um, yeah, thanks for listening. This is this is a good this is a good uh, movie to talk about and and do check it out and the and the commentary track if you can. Yeah. Definitely. Um, yeah, let us know what you think. About, yeah. About the limey, the commentary track. Comedy tracks in general, special features, or, or the 99 Project. If you have any ideas for that one, let us know. Uh, you can get in touch at Judge Movie Pods on Instagram or Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also check out uh, judgemoviepod.wordpress.com for show notes and links of the things we've talked about. And you can email us at judgemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Um, if you wanna, if you wanna tell us something. Yeah, don't forget to like rate, review, and subscribe on uh, your chosen podcast service. Yeah, and get the word out there for yeah. uh, the Judge Movie. We haven't pushed for reviews. No. That's not something we've done. I feel like it probably helps. Anyway. Anyway. Um, while we work, while we work out our laws, you just follow the letter of the film law. Mm -hmm. or else we'll see you in court.